This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Josh Morrissey, Winnipeg Jets defenseman and all-around awesome dude, is taking on mental health conversation uh, with fundraising through clothing and beer and He's created the Glass Half Full Foundation. They've just been uh, just got underway, brand new, and we have him talking about it here on the Shift Podcast. Greg Fish joins us to talk about all things flaws in forensic science, the CSI effect of what happens in court because of what we see on TV, and are you okay with riding a bike wearing nothing but a face mask and some body paint, in all fairness, and some body paint. Every now and then we get to meet uh, fantastic people just randomly. We get to meet new people and these people pop into our lives and sometimes they'll leave an impression. And this is one of the gentlemen that's done that. In fact, Josh, when we first met, I had no idea that you actually played hockey. Ironically enough, at the golf course when we met that day, um, I met and they're like, someone said to me, he said, you know who that guy is? And I'm like, I don't know. He's a nice guy. <laughs> he's a nice guy. And they're like, oh, no, that's Josh Morrissey. He plays in the NHL. And I was, I, I was like, oh, great. Well, he's... A nice guy who's also a hockey player. I mean, that's kind of the way it kind of went for me. Josh Morrissey, Winnipeg Jets. Uh, thanks for being with us here on the shift and sharing some time, brother. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's nice. Some of those, sometimes those type of situations are great when uh, you know somebody maybe doesn't recognize you for for you know playing hockey and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's cool. I, I remember that, and uh, it's great to be on here. So you have some exciting things that have sort of kicked in in your life. Before we get into talking about what's next and what you're doing in the offseason here, um, I do want to congratulate you on a fantastic season. I mean, uh, Josh Morrissey, the defenseman, you had a great season in my eyes. Uh, the team really had a great season. Cost me dinner because I did take you guys in playoffs. And Ryan O'Donnell, the, the shift uh, content producer, he did take the Canadians. So you can feel free to reach out to him and get mad at him all you like. Um, but it was it was it was enjoyable, man. You gave us great hockey to watch. It was fun to watch. Uh, disappointing outcome, I'm sure, more so for you. But um, it was great. So thank you for the great hockey. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it was definitely uh, you know it was a crazy season from start to finish, just with uh, the world that that has been. But uh, you know, we were we were just super excited to get the chance to play, and then um, as you as you referenced, I mean, it was a tough ending for us, and you know certainly any year that I guess you you don't end up hoisting the cup uh, is disappointing but um, I think we proved a lot of people wrong and I think that uh, there's a lot of things that we did that as a team uh, we can grow from and and build from and individually as well so um, you know excited for big off season and uh, you know to be ready to come back next year uh, I guess even hungrier and and uh, stronger and and uh, you know as a team and individually ready to go I can we can we just talk about Winnipeggers and just in general quickly because one thing I've learned here I, I was born in Flimflon, and so I have a family connection to Winnipeg, but most of my life or to Manitoba in general, most of my life has been spent outside of that. But the reality is, is at CGLB uh, when we broadcast, can we just talk about how awesome Manitobans are and Winnipeg people are? Because I mean, you live there for the whole winter. Am I am I wrong in that, or are they just some of the coolest people around? No, you're bang on. I mean, um, it's funny because people, you know, that haven't maybe been to Manitoba or Winnipeg or haven't spent a ton of time there will sort of ask me, you know, obviously, what's it like? And, you know, of course, 
you know, anybody can quite easily see how passionate our fans are if they just watch, um, you know, us play a home game or certainly any playoff games over the last number of years. But, you know, I think I always, I always just go back to and, and reference, you know, the license plate in Manitoba. I mean, it says friendly Manitoba and feel like personally, that's a pretty good way to describe my interactions with, with, uh, you know, the people of Winnipeg and the people in the province of Manitoba as well. Um, it's just, people are friendly. It's, it's, it's a great place to live. Um, and, and as I said, it's it's just a phenomenal place to play. So, like I said, I, I honestly have probably said that at least 50 times when asked, and I think it, it describes uh, the people in the province pretty well. In the offseason, you have really stepped into the Glass Half Full Foundation. Um, mental health has been one of the biggest core topics of all that. Um, I've sort of found this sort of men conversation at least into it too. Tell us about glass half full and how did you get here? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, um, I guess I could sort of start with the origins of where we're at today and where we've sort of gotten to, um, you know, my fiance and I, uh, over the course of, of sort of about a year and a half now, I would say, um, you know, dating back to the early days of the pandemic and sort of the pause that, uh, you know, we felt, uh, last spring and uh, everyone was you know feeling the same at home and everything else had a few conversations um you know first of all just about how we were handling things we were in winnipeg away from our family and friends um you know it it sort of seems like it seemed at that time that who knows the world you know was in a very crazy place with a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of fear and anxiety that goes along with that and uh, as it went along obviously uh, like I said, us being there away from our families and, and friends um, was tough. And so many people, you know, I think everyone had, had probably felt that to some degree. Um, and so we had, uh, you know, some really open conversations sort of just about how we were doing. And um, we uh, sort of talked a lot about our mental health and, you know, how we were feeling. And for me personally and, and for my fiance, Margot, you know, uh, we've uh, both had uh, experiences dealing with anxiety and, and you know, different feelings and emotions and, um, and challenges, uh, you know, personally and within our families. And um, it kind of coincided with the fact that we had been talking a little bit about starting our own foundation and, um, you know, really wanting to make a difference and have the ability to, you know, focus on an area that's really important to us. And so, uh, uh, so the, the idea was sort of born and obviously then we were looking for a name and as great as the Josh Morrissey Foundation sounds uh, to me, uh, one of my dad's uh, really his, his sort of token saying and, and phrase that he would always uh, remind my brother and I of growing up was, um, you know, to have a glass half full um, uh, attitude and mentality and, and it really became sort of something that I would constantly live by and remind myself of and um, still to this day it is. And so we felt like it was a perfect fit for our foundation and, you know, sort of what we're trying to do here um, in terms of, you know, obviously spreading awareness about mental health, um, continuing the open conversations and the difficult conversations and trying to make those, those conversations easier for people to have uh, and keeping a positive light on it as well. You know, for me personally, um, you know, having dealt with anxiety and stuff like that, it, it's hard to, to talk about it a lot of times. And, 
you know, I, I always felt like it was such a negative thing. It was such a, you know, hard thing for me to deal with. And, and I just felt sort of embarrassed about it a lot of times. And, um, you know, as I have gotten older and, um, have worked on my anxiety or some of the things that I've dealt with, um, with a mental skills coach and, um, you know, had some more open conversations with people close to me, you know, you realize how many other people are dealing with similar things and, um, you know, how it really affects everyone. And, and so I just wanted to, I felt like the name, uh, and my fight, my fiance felt like the name as well, just kind of perfectly encapsulated that, you know, just because you're dealing with something or whatever you're dealing with, you know, things can get better. There's help, there's options out there to, to work on yourself and it doesn't have to be a, a burden or, you know, a negative, it can be something that, um, you can, you can work on, you can handle and, and, um, internally, externally, you know, turn, um, maybe something that you view as, as, uh, holding you back or, um, a difficult part of your life into something that, you know, you can handle, um, in a lot better way and, and maybe even turn it into something that, you know, you view as, as a strength that you, um, you know, uh, have dealt with and can, uh, you know, use as, as, like I said, a strength that you feel, um, Hey, I've really learned to, to handle my anxiety and, you know, there's some pride there as well. Uh, before we get into the some of the new initiatives that Glass Half Full has kicked off with here and some of the partnerships that you have, um, can we take it literally into your life, Josh? And and that's cool if you know you don't want to. I realize not everybody wants to share those things, but you know, you talk about mental health and the various things of through the pandemic, why you get to this with Margot and why you've created the half uh, glass half full foundation. So can you, can you help us understand what that looks like in your life? Cause I think that's really going to help everyone understand what, what matters to you and, and maybe what matters to them. For sure. I mean, it's, um, you know, I think for me personally, at certain points in my life, uh, you know, I've dealt with anxiety and, um, you know, maybe in certain situations have dealt with anxiety. And, uh, for me as a, you know, as an athlete, as a, as a man as well, I always felt sort of embarrassed about, uh, you know, maybe dealing with anxiety and, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, I guess being tough or something like that. And, and, you know, I was, like I said, I was embarrassed, uh, about dealing with it. And so, um, it was something that, like I said, I, I guess, you know, I dealt with at different stages of my life and never really dealt with, um, that anxiety. I just sort of, you know, let it be there or whatever. And then, you know, uh, moved on. And then I guess, uh, as I got older and really had some great, uh, great resources. And, um, it was, a, it was an article that I read probably a year and a half ago or two years ago, um, written by Kevin Love, uh, NBA player who, um, you know, all-star and he's just a phenomenal player. He's got a really big, uh, big audience and reach. And, you know, he wrote an article about dealing with anxiety and, um, how he had dealt with it and, and, um, you know, how he was embarrassed about it and, you know, sort of his journey, if you will. And so I felt like when I read that, okay, wow, I, 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 I felt sort of inspired to, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, my challenges with anxiety at certain points. And so I, I reached out to my, you know, mental skills coach. I hadn't, you know, really talked too much about it. And, um, 
even just sort of that conversation of talking about it and, you know, saying, Hey, listen, I've dealt with anxiety in certain situations. Um, you know, really felt like it took a weight off my shoulders and, you know, we talked about some different ways for me to deal with it and, and handle it. And, you know, like I said, it was just, it was really a, a crazy experience to sort of be willing to say, Hey, you know, I am dealing with anxiety or I'm feeling anxious right now. And that was something that I never really felt, you know, comfortable doing before. And so, you know, real having realized that and, and realized how impactful that article was for me, um, you know, I, I guess I feel like I wanted to, to talk about it more. And so um, that's sort of a little bit about what the Glass Half Full Foundation is about, um, you know, having open conversations and, you know, sort of, I guess, promoting, um, you know, the, the positivity around having those conversations and, and, you know, trying to remove those stigmas that are, are so detrimental to us and, you know, helping people to feel um, open about opening up and okay about opening up or talking about some of the things that they're dealing with. And, um, you know, it can be small, it can be big, but you know, the thing that I realized was how many people I had talked to that were dealing with similar things, had friends, family dealing with similar things. Um, and, you know, just talking about it, I think not only did it help me, but it also, I think, allowed some of the people I was talking to to feel comfortable enough to maybe share some of the things they were dealing with. And it almost was a trickle down effect. So, you know, I, I feel, um, you know, very thankful that I was able to read the article and, and, uh, you know, I think it, it sort of has, uh, really led to a lot of inspiration, uh, for me in my own life. And then also now, you know, with our foundation and, um, moving forward, uh, some of our goals and, and, you know, aspirations that we have, um, you know, within our foundation as well. For me, when I think about mental health, anxiety, all those things, I always get, uh, I'm a bit of a workaholic, I guess, and maybe that's just a story that I tell myself, but I, I, I work to this point where I sort of break down and I get tired and then I go to bed and then I have a hell of a time getting up every now and then. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, I can't bring myself to get out of bed, maybe two days in a row. And I eventually do. I get up and I get started through the day, but I will just literally, it's like a magnet sucks you in. Um, and I share that not from a place that it's any better or worse than anybody else's just for the way that that's where my awareness happens around that fatigue and the mental health that I'm, I'm done at that point. So of course I try to work it so I don't get to the place where I'm done anymore and that's getting better. Is there a place for you where you noticed it really in your life every day, Josh, that you're comfortable sharing? Yeah. I mean, I think for me personally, it was, you know, more in different situations, you know, from the time I was a young kid, really, you know, in any situation, it wasn't a, it wasn't a daily feeling for me, but there were certainly, um, you know, varying situations where, you know, I'd have a heightened anxiety level and, um, you know, dealt with that anxiety and, uh, and it was a challenge. I mean, for me, something that's, um, been unique to my career is, you know, I get a, you know, anxiety around flying, you know, I, and it's something that, uh, you know, I've always thought was embarrassing for sure. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, in our career, we, we play, 
you know, 41 road games at least during the regular season, well, during the regular season and uh, potentially more in the playoffs and, and uh, preseason, you know, we're traveling a lot. So obviously it's something that's prevalent in my career and, you know, something that I have to do, you know, you just wouldn't be able to play uh, in the NHL without, without flying and traveling that way. So, you know, for me, it was something that I was, uh, like I said, embarrassed about and, um, you know, sort of never really told um, many people, you know, I, I my fiance uh, Margot knew and, uh, you know, a few people close to me knew, but you know, I just didn't want people to know, um, like I said, out of embarrassment. Um, and so I think over time, you know, what I realized was as I sort of grew and, and you know, um, right after I read that article and sort of made some some real improvements um, in dealing with my anxiety and learning of some strategies to start to cope with it. Um, after talking to a lot of my friends, uh, it was crazy to hear, you know, a number of them also weren't, you know, big, uh, big fans of flying or maybe say of turbulence or, you know, things like that. And uh, I guess it just, again, having some of those conversations, um, you know, it was really, it felt sort of like a weight off, off, off of my back. And, uh, you know, I feel like now, you know, I'm at a stage where, you know, I'm not afraid of flying. I actually enjoy it sometimes and I have ways to sort of handle the moments that I don't like. Um, when in the past, you know, I would feel so anxious, it would, it would really bother me and it would affect me. And, um, I would almost feel anxiousness and anxiety about, I guess, having the anxiety of flying because I didn't want to tell anyone, I didn't want to look, you know, nervous or anxious in those situations. And um, I think just sort of being open about it and, you know, being like, hey, I'm, I'm nervous about flying. I have anxiety about flying, I whatever, you know, um, really made, made a huge difference for me. So, you know, that's just one area of my life. But um, you know, it, it kind of goes to to show that, you know, by having some of those conversations, by opening up, by, you know, um, understanding that, hey, you're dealing with anxiety. It's not something that uh, you should be ashamed of. You know, it, it, for me, I almost feel like it's something that I can view as a strength of mine now because I've put in time and effort to, you know, grow in those areas. And now I know how to handle those situations a lot better and I'm open about those situations um it really does feel almost like a strength and uh so it's been a cool personal journey for me and and I'm really happy about the progress I've made um and sort of where I'm at right now so you've started with the glass half full and you're taking it to everybody's heart and stomach with beer. What a great partnership. Wild Rose Brewery with Local Laundry. You guys have, uh, you're, they're going to be helping you out with the Sunday fuzz. So how awesome <laughs> is it to get started with beer uh, straight way to everyone's heart? That's for sure. Yeah, we're, we're super excited. Um, you know, for us, uh, we're super honored to be able to have, you know, such great companies, um, you know, Wild Rose, Local Laundry, uh, stepping up and, and supporting us right away as we get going here with our foundation um, in such early days. Uh, it was, it's was it been a really fun collaboration to, uh, to work on. And, um, you know, we're, we feel really, you know, I guess excited and, and certainly fortunate that, um, you know, a, a 
a portion of uh, the proceeds of, of the beer sales and the uh, apparel done by Local Laundry, which looks outstanding, uh, will go towards our foundation and, and uh, you know, supporting our foundation. And um, I think we're going to be able to really do some cool things and, and help, you know, um, support some amazing organizations uh, through this collaboration. So it's really been a, a lot of fun. It's been cool. Um, you know, I was nervous about, uh, I wasn't able to try the beer before um, it hit the shelves. And obviously you want it to be a great one. And I uh, have had some Wild Rose beers in the past and they've always been fantastic. And you know, I have to say this, this one might be the best one I've had. It's, uh, there's a heat wave here in, in, in Alberta right now. And, uh, you know, it's, it certainly goes well with the heat. It's, uh, it's sort of definitely a, a summer beer and um, like I said, we're just super excited, uh, you know, super excited to have this collaboration, um, you know, super, super proud and, and thankful that they were willing to partner with us. And, um, you know, I'd be remiss as well if I, if I didn't mention um, Anthony Fleming, who is uh, the artist who designed the logo for the can and uh, also for the shirts. Uh, it just looks fantastic. Um, you can check it out. Uh, online at select retailers here in, in Alberta and, and also at the Wild, Ro Wild Rose Tap Room as well. Um, but it's really cool and, and uh, you know, it's a great way for us to get started. And I think it's, uh, it's really, we're really excited about it. If the new beer, the peach beer, is anywhere, if it's half as good as the Wild Rose Raspberry beer, the Raspberry Ale, it'll be dynamite because... They do some amazing things, and um, once you have that, the, some of the flavors that they do, like there's like no going back. You're like regular beer is boring. Um, so very cool stuff. Dustin at local laundry, I had the privilege of meeting him too in the last uh, six weeks or so. Unrelated to this, and um, stand up organizations that you've managed to partner with here. Uh, pretty exciting what's coming up, and connections to Glass Half Full. Josh Morrissey, how does everyone find out what you're up to and connect online? Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you're looking to uh, learn a little bit more about, um, you know, what we're doing, you can certainly check us out on on Instagram at the uh, GHF Foundation. Uh, and then if you're looking to uh, to check out our website and, you know, contact us or read a little bit about the backstory and all kinds of stuff, uh, you can check us out at uh, glasshalffullfoundation.com. Uh, and as well, um, Wild Rose has been posting a lot about updates on uh, restocking of the beer because it's been uh, selling out pretty fast. So if you're looking to, uh, you know, find a location that uh, that will have, uh, you know, the beer, the Sunday fuzz in stock, I uh, would check out their page as well, uh, Wild Rose Brewery. So, yeah, that, that's really the best way um, to get in touch with us or keep up to to what we're uh, what we're up to. Josh Morrissey is. Uh doing amazing things and sharing his heart. And I think that the cool part here, Josh, that I see is, I mean, you play, you've had all kinds of success through all of your career um, from your midget hockey, leading up to your Bantam draft, your midget hockey, your WHL hockey, your AHL to the NHL and being an uh, alternate captain for, um, for the jets and, and all of this success. And I think that the, it can reach this connection that, you know, you can be successful in your job and still be a normal person and I think that that's um, it's incredibly important for everyone to know that because you know what, you're not alone. Here we are, and we're all going through similar things, 
whether it's riding in a car or flying in an airplane or, you know, stressed out about money or, or whatever it is that you go through. So thank you very much for leading by example and for bringing this to the forefront. And we're looking forward to getting more updates, which, by the way, I should say that the uh, the fall is the end of the season for the beer. So don't miss out your chance to go get it, too. Thanks for being here, Josh. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, really uh, an amazing show. Um, you know, I've I had the pleasure of listening before and, and uh, many times. And, uh, you know, when you reached out and, and asked to have us on, it was... Uh, it was just super exciting for us, especially as such a at such an early uh, stage for us and our, our our foundation. And uh, you know, the support is is uh, much appreciated. So thank you very much for having us, and hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome, Welcome. to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Fishy, the word science has been batted about in more ways in the last 15 months than ever anybody could have expected. It is a word that is often misunderstood. And it turns out science has such an impact on so many things of our lives, in our lives. We also have to look at, we're going to look at what is science. I think we've got to look at what is not science. And then what is just bad pseudo fake pretended science science and where do we where does that take us from world of weird things.com so it's going to take us to something that i want to talk about for a while but never really got the chance to and that is the validity of forensic science so oh nowadays whenever you watch whenever you watch anything that, that concerns true crime they always talk about the forensic and the forensic evidence um you have all these movies and all these crime procedurals where there's all this forensic evidence and they find all this dna and they can do these amazing things with ai and reconstruct plates and and such and such and people have come to expect that in real criminal proceedings and that has actually not gone well like at all. And it's a story that's really barely covered. And the reason why I took such an interest to it is because it really operates around this idea that if somebody who sounds like they're in charge, who has fairly advanced terminology in their employ, and who's sitting there in a court of law saying, well, the statistics say that the odds of this finding are X and Y, then they probably did their science, they probably did their research, and what they're presenting is probably accurate. But the reality is they could be presenting something that's actually quite ironclad or they could be presenting complete nonsense that was literally invented in some guy's basement in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Now, forensics, as best I know this, and I am not a forensics person, but my favorite human in the whole wide world uh, happens to work in forensics. So when you look at um, a proper proper terminolo- terminology, like you said, someone who speaks to it and they sound like they have advanced vocabulary around it, usually will sound something along the lines of, in a courtroom, okay, expert witness, uh, you're telling me that the results of your science mean that, you know, everybody who turns left on a red light is, you know, going to die in three years. And the answer would be, um, no, the results of my study is that in this test case, seven out of 10 people who turn left died in three years, right? Like it, it's, there's a difference between my study there's a difference between uh, peer reviews, widely accepted science, and everything else. And quite often, when it comes to science, individual study is 
individual study. And you, that starts to become clear when you listen to real scientists speak about their work, as opposed to the Hollywood stuff, which we see. And is that, is that what's misleading us? Yeah, it, it really is. The idea is that one study is never really fully definitive. A study could be groundbreaking. It could be revolutionary. It could be the start of an entire new discipline. Yeah, this is not to demean individual studies. Yeah, but it only attains those superlatives if there's other people who follow up on it, who do subsequent studies, who do replication studies, who do advanced work, and they keep finding all the stuff that supports the original finding. A single study by itself rarely, if ever, has any sort of profound impact on science as a whole. It's just an interesting finding until we really start building up on it. And when it comes to results of a study, yeah. Yeah. And and when it comes to forensics, there's that there's that all or nothing attitude that a lot of people have about science. So right now I said, well there's you know, some BS that's being pretended that's being presented as like actual science in courtrooms. And the question is, well, is all forensics BS? Of course not. No, absolutely no. There's uh, a lot of things that have to do with DNA evidence, a lot of things that have to do with um, certain analysis of people's digital footprints. Um, There's a lot of um, there are a lot of good scientifically proven disciplines that can indeed make a case very solid and -hmm. provide really important evidence. And then there is just complete bunk that has been admitted, not because it passed peer review or there's science behind it or any scientist actually ever looked at it. It's because judges accepted it in one particular case. It went okay and they established the precedent and that precedent kept getting used again and again and again. So for example, so DNA Solid science. We understand how to analyze DNA. We understand our limitations about the technology. When we look at at different DNA samples, we can say, okay, this person was at a crime scene. But when it comes to things like blood spatter analysis, and there are some, there were some studies of how um, arson is is executed. Um, it's literally these are things that that individuals invented, taught in. 40-hour courses as apprenticeships. It was admitted in court. People have been convicted. They've been put in jail. And some of them have even been executed for these crimes that they supposedly committed. But then the actual people who created the science said, uh, no. That's not not right. Hmm? Blood spatter, like chemistry is chemistry. The chemicals are present or they are not, right? Um, DNA is present or it is not. It is a match or it is a partial match of whatever piece of it. Blood spatter would be interpretation. There would be, okay, so in our research, when we hit... Um, you know, this mannequin with a Louisville slugger from this angle, our results looked an awful lot like those results, but that's not really how they've been portraying it. No, not at all. It's very much been. So what blood spatter says could possibly be good for is to say, okay, in this particular crime scene reconstruction, I got some ideas about what might have happened. This is maybe from what angle they came. This could be what kind of weapon they use, but that's it. It's just to get some ideas to say mm-hmm. because the blood patterns matched, the splatter patterns matched, this is exactly what happened. That is an incredible stretch. And like I said, this is one of those sciences, well, the forensic practices rather, um, that was, again, literally investment, invented in the guy's basement in New York and was accepted because prosecutors just really 
wanted to nail down the case against suspects where they had real difficulty with the other um, circumstantial evidence that they've had at the same time. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's very it's very problematic. Um, then there's other things like behavioral profiling. There's a lot of there's been a lot of TV um, that has uh, really centered around you know these these FBI behavioral profile people or in, or Interpol behavioral profilers. But it's actually they're about as accurate as psychics in actual studies where they're um, where they've been told to analyze things about a suspected criminal and a completely fictional crime. They they didn't get very many things right at all, if anything. Uh, there's also things like hair analysis and fiber analysis where people visually inspect hair and fibers under the microscope. And again, that's that's all a matter of interpretation. It's exactly like you said. If there's chemicals, if there's measurable things, if it's quantifiable in a reproducible way with the same type of equipment, it's probably scientific and it's probably well-tested. If it relies on someone with a certain certification leaning back and saying, well, my expert opinion is X, Y, Z, probably steer clear away from that. And the fact that it's actually being used in courtrooms is really scary because that could mean that an actual criminal is now getting away with a crime. Someone else is getting locked up and they're free to do whatever they want. So it's not even just about you know, the sanctity of science. It's not just about what we call science. It's also about making sure that we get it right to actually get real criminals off the street and keep innocent people out of jail and off death row. Mm-hmm. Well, there was uh, one particular TV show that might have changed the course of many of these things. And it it kind of went like, um, he said he'd die when pigs fly. Well, it looks like swine flu. <laughs> Uh, CSI has a big impact on this. Oh yeah, uh, sorry. I need to need, need to put my sunglasses back on. I just took them off for impact. But, uh, so yes, in fact, it's been known. It's the the phenomenon of people expecting forensic evidence for every single crime, and not just forensic evidence, but like one hundred percent conclusive, one in a trillion possibility that they're wrong. Um, that's been known as the CSI effect. And juries have really come to expect that police work is much more precise than it actually is. There's a lot of, when it comes to police work, there's a lot of um, just, you know, honest, hit the pavement, um, talk to talk to people, get leads, investigate suspect. You know, these this very unglamorous work that still has to be done to even get to the part where they analyze the forensic evidence. And then that forensic evidence has to be analyzed and reanalyzed because there may be contaminated samples or maybe some procedure wasn't quite right or maybe somebody sat on some evidence and forgot to send it to the right address. Um, A lot of these things happen. And in fact, they used to happen a lot in the so-called golden age of serial killers in the 70s and 80s and, and to some extent early 90s. Uh, you know, you look at Ted Bundy, you look at the Night Stalker, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of serial killers who went on rampages, if you look at actually how they were caught with today's technologies, with today's IDs, with today's digital footprints that we all leave behind, they would have been caught in weeks, if not sooner. They mm. So 
this is what this is kind of like what we're what, what we're talking about. We have the technology to catch real criminals, and but we still need to do that. We still need to do that that boring detective work before we even you know hit the hit the forensic stuff. And unfortunately, what happens is a lot of people, when they look at, you know, police procedurals, they see like these glossy, you know, in an hour, we've caught our suspect from this impossible thing. Or there's like this TV show where they talk about how police officers solved this crime. And if you actually follow along, the the clues were actually kind of there. It was one of those like, okay, there's like an obvious list of three people and two obviously didn't do it and one is like named Ted the Hobo Strangler and they walked it they they go to his house and he's strangling somebody mid interview. Like it's it's pretty easy. And then you also then watch like the the other documentaries the of and, and listen to the true crime podcasts and they talk about how, well, you know, in some cases police ignore leads and um they latch into the first theory that they that they see and they didn't really do the due diligence on this. And this person was convicted using some circumstantial evidence and hire an expert from the blood spatter school of blood spatonology in Nowheresville, New York. And, and you, you start getting a very disturbing picture of what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Well, you think of all those storylines from the seventies with all the serial killers and all those things. I mean, well, how different would the outcome be when they, when you look at it, um, you know, from that lens, right? So what do we do, Fish? How does this get fixed? I mean, we've got a bunch of people that are have, we've got to manage expectations that court cases aren't that much fun. Well, yes, we have to manage those expectations and we have to manage those expectations. I actually, believe it or not, I think with, with better TV, with more realistic TV that really portrays what more real police work looks like, that there are errors that there are things that don't quite go right that it's not you know here's these brilliant detectives who catch their who catch their perp every single time sometimes things are very convoluted things are very complicated not because the person's a super villain but because there's just errors in the system or there's not enough evidence or they have to keep waiting and investigating and searching the other uh more immediate fix to the judicial system is that there are in Canada and the United States there are scientific bodies who can um, who are responsible for certain standards uh, for certain um, for certain procedures that are supposed to be applied to scientific grants to scientific studies um, and they actually have the capability to review whether all these forensic disciplines meet the criteria and definition of science. So I can't speak for Canada, but I know that in the United States, there is the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, um, and they have actually been once upon a time tasked with reviewing these forensic sciences and to say which meet the defi- which of these meet the definitions of a hard science. Unfortunately, that work was stopped a few years ago, and there's not a lot of information about whether it's going to continue or not, which is a shame because it really needs to continue like yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's interesting stuff. If you want to check out more, you can. You go to the worldofweirdthings.com. It's all there for you. 
And uh, there's a really, uh, this particular article is uh, very easy to find. Um, if you just give it a little search, like if there's a little search thing at the top, just search forensics or something like that, junk science, anything like that. You're going to find it really quick. Plus some good videos that will help you understand it too. Not only is it a blog, there's a podcast too. His name is Greg Fish and his uh, family. Thanks, brother, for being here. Always a pleasure. It's the Shift Podcast. And uh, let's get started with our conversation around, are you okay? Are you okay with fatalities or a part of life? As a statement from the premier, no, no, I'm not. I'm not really okay with that. Uh, He could have, he could have phrased that a little better and he, he, um, he has an issue with phrasing things sometimes. Sometimes it sounded uh, a lot like when Trump was like, "Some people are gonna die, and that's just life." It sounded very un-Canadian. Mm. Those conversations happen behind closed doors, right? Like there are doctors and all those people that have to make decisions that say that we can't save everybody. What are we gonna do? Kind of conversations. Those are real life political people conversations. Those are not the kinds of conversations that go to your outside public voice. I don't think that's okay. Well, uh, let's get the clip if you don't know what it is uh, from Mr. Horgan. Fatalities are part of life. The public was acutely aware that we had a heat problem uh, and we were doing our best to break through all of the other noise to encourage people to take steps to protect themselves. Um, acutely aware. Well, if they weren't acutely aware in advance, they became acutely aware very quickly. But being acutely aware does not mean you always have the resources to deal with it, right? I often become acutely aware that I've had too many whiskeys, but I'm going to have to ride it out. You know, it's not like there's like, oh, I'm acutely aware now we're good. Uh, there's a text message that comes in on this very topic. Can you play the first couple seconds of that clip? Just, just the fatalities part for me. Fatalities are part of life. The public was... So what Mark says is this. Mark's text message verbatim. Fatality, uh, fatality is a part of life? Question mark. Fatality is a part of mortal combat, not life. In fact, anything fatal <laughs> is the absence of life. LOL. It's his text message. Very valid. Uh, very... Uh, you know what, Mark? You've actually made us uh, acutely aware of what fatality actually is. So thank you very much. Uh, if we can forward that off to John Horgan, that text message from Mark probably be appreciated. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Uh, if you do like Mortal Kombat, by the way, shameless promo time, just go uh, to CuriousCast.ca, check out this, uh, .ca, check out the Shift podcast and search for Mortal Kombat. And you will find um, our very good friend who is the, uh, the voice of Mortal Kombat in one of those conversations, which is pretty cool. All right. Are you okay? Are you okay with? Heck yeah. I yeah, love absolutely. that show. It was one of the first cartoons I ever watched. It was just always on. Even like YTV when I was a kid. There were Flintstones reruns happening all the time. Yeah. Well, I watched Flintstones when they weren't reruns, but we, uh, <laughs> wow, they're fantastic show. Yikes. Hey, man, uh, uh, Dino the dog with his big, you know, dinosaur bones to chew on. I mean, that was amazing, right? 
And how many people have made the Flintstones joke when the car is not running, like the golf cart or something, and it's not running, so you make the Flintstones joke oh, with yeah. the feet? Classic. Everybody does that. Oh, I mean, yeah. this is Still. this is iconic. Are you okay with the Flintstones? A very interesting legal battle over the Flintstones has finally come to an end, and it all has to do with a house. Strangely enough, according to NBC News, this colorful home in Northern California, often referred to as the Flintstone House for its dinosaur replicas, unique shape and memorabilia from the 60s cartoon, can stay caveman-themed after all after a lawsuit between the town and the home's owner has been settled. I don't understand why there's a lawsuit. The house consists of purple and red domes surrounded by statues of Fred Flintstone, Barney Rubble, and all the other characters from the iconic Flintstones franchise. Here's more on that lawsuit and the very bizarre home from Inside Edition. Uh, they do not want to be known as Bedrock USA. They'd like to be known as Hillsborough USA. The attorney for Hillsborough says the dinosaur and animal statues, along with some other decorations, required design review and building permits, which the owner did not acquire before they were installed. The town says the property is an eyesore. Hi, Florence. Great to meet you as well. The home's owner was featured in a 2018 short documentary about the property called The Flintstone House. Retired publishing executive Florence Fang says she loves her house and how happy it makes other people. Yes. Everybody passing by this says, I start smile. Yes. I start smile. Look at the house, I start smile. When I'm driving, I smile. But the very unhappy town of Hillsborough wants her to take down the statues and get the proper permissions before she puts them back up. Most town residents that I've talked to feel like this entire installation is far out of character for the town of Hillsborough, and they worry that if it's allowed to go on here, maybe somebody else will want to put up a Jetsons or Star Wars installation elsewhere in the town that everybody's going to have to look at all the time. That, uh, uh, that doesn't sound too bad to me. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty genius, yeah. actually. Yeah. Right? I want a TIE mm -hmm. fighter house. Uh, okay, so I still don't get it. Okay, so they put up statues before without getting... Uh, they're on their property. Um, I Maybe the I don't understand it. It's a lot. The house? It is, it's a lot. It is situated on a cliff, and there yeah. is a major bridge in and out of the town. So every time you drive into town... Yeah. You'll look to your right and see a giant purple and red house with dinosaur statues. Yeah. And the town was like, we don't want that. It looks cartoonish and weird. And I think that's stupid. That's great. You want to know why Drumheller is one of my favorite places on Earth? Is because they embrace the fact that they're surrounded by dinosaur stuff. Right? There's a mm -hmm. giant dinosaur there. I think that's cool. So I'm glad this lady won and the city lost. Well, there's um, well, there's the giant dinosaur, but then there's dinosaurs on every corner, uh, all kinds of different dinosaurs. So this is cool. I like, okay, it kind of looks like a cake, like that's what the house looks like. If I'm trying to yeah, paint the yeah, picture for that. you, it kind of looks like Yo Gabba Gabba colors, right? And what were the um, what were this totally psychedelic kids show? Uh, there's like the four colors: the purple and the red one and the yellow one. And they had like the thing the Teletubbies, Teletubbies. That's it kind of looks like their their buildings designed after Teletubbies. Thank you, by the way. And um, I don't see the problem with it. I mean, it's not pretty. It is very ugly. I get that. But it's the Flintstones inside. It, by the way, is authentic. 
Like the inside of the house is designed like the Flintstones. The the shelves in the kitchen are like they're carved out of rock. It's not like a normal house well, inside either. It's not at all. And you know what's interesting is the guy who designed that house had did not design it for the Flintstones. He apparently was like super offended when it was first compared to it. And then he met this woman after she bought it. And he was like, okay, you know what? I'm fine with it. It makes sense. It's okay. But this was just a weird house designed in the 70s. It's always been there. It's just hmm. this lady fully embraces the Flintstones, the identity to it. I love it. It's ugly. It's beautifully ugly. It's ugly, ugly, beautiful. Um, and uh, anyway, so if you want to go check it out, you can go check it out. Um, just Google Flintstone House, and you're going to see the photos uh, that are there. There's like Fred and Barney and all those guys. Wilma on the front lawn. There's statues everywhere. I think it's genius. Um, and if that house was just designed as a house, and it's it, it leans more towards the Teletubbies in the psychedelia than anything else, because that is weird, if that's the case. If you designed that for no reason, A, you have a lot of money, and B, there's a lot of acid, I think, involved. Are you okay? Are you okay with riding a bike? Yeah, it's good exercise. It's a good mm -hmm. summer day, ride along the seawall, you know, cool off. Yeah, why not? All right. Yeah, it's good exercise. It's very... If it goes the right way, it's very enjoy. I find it really enjoyable. The wind feels nice. I like going fast. It's a good workout. Uh, do I don't like bike biking on the road, though. On the road, I don't think you should. I don't think bikes should belong on the road. Every time I see them on the road, I get anxious, and I never ever like taking mine on the road. It freaks me out. Mm. Uh, yeah, okay, I, I get that. I was curious when you said if you ride it the right way. I don't know how you ride it the wrong way. I. I'm really okay with riding a bike downhill. Like, that is my favorite bike ride. I think you can make a mint if you could just provide, like, service to carry bikes back uphill. Like, one-way bike service. So, if you ride to work and it's downhill to work, then ride your bike to work. And then when you come home, your bike is magically at home again. I think it's a business thing. I think you could pull it off. I think it's pretty awesome. A charity bike ride in Philadelphia is going ahead with a few tweaks this summer. Organizers of the annual Philly Naked Bike Ride. Oh, that's an image. See, now that's the wrong way to ride a bike. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> oh, man, that's, I don't know, that's, there's a bike seat joke there that just is not okay. Anyway, the Naked Bike Ride, uh, they say that this year's event will take place in late August and the only thing you need to wear is a mask. Hmm. Here's more from NBC10 Philadelphia. Organizers say as of now, the ride will require face masks. But that could change as the city lifts more COVID restrictions. The Philly Naked Bike Ride is set for August 28th. It's a 10-mile course that's designed to promote positive body image while advocating for cyclist safety and less dependence on fossil fuels. Didn't think I'd say face masks, That was right? not the body part that I thought was Plot going twist. to be uh, covered. <laughs> um, like, I'm all for biking in order to create alternative ways to get to work and stuff, but why do you need to do it naked? Isn't that just a distraction? If they're doing bike safety, isn't that just a distraction? Yeah, and it, bike safety, if you wipe out and you're butt naked on your bike, oh, yeah, so many things are going to go wrong. Road rash. Also... Bike seats are not places. comfortable. Right. 
and they are I guarantee to be even more uncomfortable without shorts or anything on. Yeah. Okay. Um, the riders, the rider, the riders, the riders, the ride, the riders, the ride people. The only person apparently who rides this in this thing, the rider. <laughs> That's a typo. Uh, sometimes in the thousands, usually gather in a park to strip off their clothes and paint each other's bodies before carefully. <laughs> wow. Hopping on their bikes. Carefully. <laughs> carefully. I did a brighter's pedal at 10 mile, 16 kilometer course while taking in sights. Oh, it's a sight, I'm sure. Including Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell. Oh, <laughs> you want to see my Liberty Bell? That's terrible. Oh. And the Philadelphia <laughs> Museum of the Arts steps featured in the Rocky movies. But why paint yourself? This is just a pickup. They're just trying to pick up. They're just oh, like, we're sure we're just painting ourselves. Uh, we're going to be naked and we're trying to meet other nudists and I call it like a green I, event. You know, I've never been to Philly, but I've heard a lot about it. And this seems like the most Philadelphia thing ever. <laughs> I went to Philly once and it was like minus 30. It's not a day for a naked bike ride. Believe me. <laughs> Are you okay? Which one do you want to do here, right? You want to do uh, pubs or do you want to do uh... the pubs clip is long? So right. I think we only do. We only have time to do the other one. Let me do that. I only got time for one. All right. Good meeting. Are you okay with celebrity lookalikes? Billy Corgan ones. Yeah, you do look like Billy Corgan. Yeah, Billy Corgan. The black, the black T-shirt also. It really doesn't, yeah. Yeah. I think it's cool to be told that you look like a celebrity, but people who do it as a career, I just don't see that as being very fulfilling. And I mean, I, I'm as an outsider, someone who doesn't do it, but I mean, unless you're like a street performer in L.A. in front of the theaters or something, I just, I never really get it. All right, dressing like a celeb is one thing. What about plastic surgery? A white British social media influencer and singer is de uh, defending his decision to identify as a Korean. Uh, they underwent surgery, what they describe as racial transitional surgery. Ollie London, who most recently came out as a non-binary and uses pronouns they and them, released a video on YouTube explaining how they have gone under, uh, undergone plastic surgery 18 times to look like BTS singer Park Jimin, also known as Jimin. Uh, here is the clip as he explains it. My own culture. And now finally, I feel Korean. You know, I feel I identify with the Korean community. Maybe they will accept me more now because I have the look, you know. Maybe people will think I'm actually Korean, uh, which will make me really happy. Um, and they can see how much I love their culture because this is the extreme length I've gone to because I love Korea so much. I just want to make Jimin proud. So uh, that's a guy who has gone through surgery to not only um, look like a celebrity, but um, to a different celebrity from a completely different culture. Probably not okay. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.